Sifter, the podcast. News, interviews, reviews, cinema, TV, streaming, action. Hi, y'all. This is Jerry Williams, a.k.a. TV Jerry. Before we get started, I just want to mention the season finale of Yellowstone last week. In true Richard Sheridan style, it was wonderful writing and interesting plot developments. Jimmy even made me cry. I am thrilled to be here today to kick off the Sifter podcast with Andy Edmonds, the director of the Virginia Film Office. Welcome to Sifter, Andy. The legendary Jerry Williams. Thank you for having me. You know, I don't even know. When did we meet? Do you have any idea when we actually met each other for the first time? I think, Jerry, I met you back when I was doing my music video in the mid-80s. Uh, hard to make a living. You had directed some other music videos that had made it to MTV. Well, actually, the two that I directed were Single Bullet Theory. Oh, that's right. Single Bullet Theory. Yeah, yeah. And Charlie Riley and Guy Spiller at BES did the first one. We actually shot it in the Bird Hotel overnight. And then the second one was the wonderful, talented, late John Parks, who shot Hang On to Your Heart for us and also shot Hard to Make a Living for The Sweat yeah. Band, which was your band. That's right. And so I met you back in that time. And what happened... For me, then, Jerry, was that I became interested in production. So I would get jobs during the day working in production and play music at night for many, many, many years. Right, right. Until finally one day came along, Jerry, where married, had our first child and needed health insurance, right? So I needed a real job. I left the world of freelance, and that was my first kind of corporate type job when I went to the film office. You don't remember? Wasn't wasn't I like super memorable to you? You don't remember <laughs> the moment you met me? Well, I'll tell you what Come I on. do remember. This is funny. My my best friend since college, Barry Fitzgerald, who of course you know. Yeah, who worked on Hard to Make a Living. Yeah, he was the set designer, and he told me the, the story about how he had to make you pour coffee through your head, through your ears. How did they do that? Tell me what the story was behind. How did they got that coffee to go through your head? When I wrote that tune, I had a complete storyboard epiphany for every kind of verse and section of the song, kind of description of what scenes I, I was seeing as I, this song played out. And I had this shot where the line is, you know, taking a gallon of coffee to wake up your head. And I wanted to show me pouring this coffee through my head through a, a funnel. And so he built the set sideways and they strapped me to a chair sideways. I had this funnel with a tube going around the back of my head out the other ear, and I would pour the coffee in as I'm sitting. It was very Charlie Chaplin kind of thing. And but, then yeah. they shot it, filmed it sideways, and then, of course, turned it around in post-production. But yeah, it's a pretty cool little shot. By the way, on Sifter, I'm going to post a link to that music video. It's still up. So they can see you, especially in your sharp yellow blazer, selling <laughs> vacuum cleaners. <laughs> and here's the thing, man. That was my uh, Volkswagen bus that I... Gosh, Jerry, I wish I had that thing to this day because they're worth a ton of money. But that was my Volkswagen bus that, uh, you know, the guys got in the van to do that scene. Right. And I did, in fact, sell vacuum cleaners briefly. Oh, really? Uh, in my, oh, yeah. In my struggle to make a living, man. The whole song was about trying to make a living. But it was really about, you know, the, the hook is hard to make a living. I just want to live. And what you want to live is I want to play music. I want to rock, you know. Right, and, right, and, right. Segwaying over into when you finally got realistic and realized you had to uh, support your wife and family, you got into the film office. You started out as a location scout. Is that correct? Yeah. So I started doing locations as an independent contractor on various projects that would come through Richmond. And I liked being in locations because 
I could scratch my uh, creative itch of actually trying to find something that satisfied the filmmaker's artistic vision for what they were looking for right. and then be able to see that up on screen, you get some satisfaction out of that, that I helped shape that image of the, of the show, right? Do that. It plus from a practical sense, I like locations because you were really one of the first ones in and the last ones out over the stretch of a production. So you literally had more paychecks, right? You know, it was right, a lot more employment right, right. with locations. It also used some skills of, to be a location scout, location manager, you kind of have to be a detective. You have to find things. You have to, you know, who's the guy that knows the girl that knows where this is. And right. it's a whole kind of investigative process that's very challenging. And then it's a psychological and sales process, convincing people to allow you to come film in their place and giving them the comfort and developing the trust with location owners that you're going to, you know, take care of their, of their home or their building or whatever. And so it's that, that process of, of sales psychology. It comes down kind of to the primal thing of the hunt, you know, for me, I'm about the hunt, whether we're bringing the project to Virginia, whether we're getting the location we need, whether we're getting the permission to land the helicopter in the highway that no one wants to let us do, you know, whether we want to stop the train, all those challenges are part of, of the primal hunt thing that I'm trying to, you know, satisfy, I guess, right? Before I even tried to get the job, I realized that the film office had 4,500 manila folder files of locations, you know, individually taped up photographs and taped up in panoramic form that all these just regular photos that said, we need to go digital, right? And no one really was like onto that. And they're like, what's that? I said, trust me, we're going digital. We need to scan these photos into a database, right? Which was kind of a new notion. And so I offered to work, come to the film office and work for free to do this, right? And I became location manager. Then Rita allowed me to kind of write my job description because then I really became a client services person at that time in addition to locations. Footnote. The Rita he's referring to is Rita McClenny, former head of the film office and now president and CEO of Virginia Tourism. We'll hear more about Rita soon. It's just a lesson that I try to impart when I talk to students and film students and classes that the career I have now was all because I was willing to work for free. So I always try to inspire young people to find someone you really want to mentor with and don't worry about the paycheck. I know you need to make a living, you need to pay for food, but be willing to put yourself out there into the right environment that is going to be fulfilling for you. Because what happened then I, you know, started the film office and uh, worked on, you know, so many things, you know, over the years. And it got to a point where I'd worked with so many clients that when Rita left to do more tourism stuff, most of the clients I've been working with, and they said, okay, you're now the film commissioner. Most of them said, I thought you were the film commissioner. <laughs> you know, it's like they, they... How long were you working at the uh, film office until you managed to push Rita McClenny out. <laughs> First of all, did you talk about the glorious Rita McClenny uh, being the CEO of tourism, as you know, and of just course, an yeah. amazing leader, an amazing person. So I was there, I guess it would have been like, you know, 13 or 14 years. Wow. wow. And then what happened is she, you know, became the CEO of tourism. Of course, our office is the film office is part of tourism. Of course, she gets to drive but, that big Virginia's for lovers. That's truck. right. That's kind of hard to drive that Virginia Philover's truck around. You can't, you know, everybody's staring at you. And it's hilarious to see this beautiful, elegant woman get out of that big truck in her pumps. She's always got high heels. <laughs> always looks fabulous. You know, everybody basically, I think most people know the film office 
gets films here or tries to get films here. But obviously you do a lot more. There's locations, there's permits, some of the stuff you already talked about, about landing helicopters and stuff. So what are some of the things that the film office does that people may not even realize it's part of the job? It depends what you say most people, because there's so many different constituencies. Their constituencies are, you know, the citizens we deal with to try to gain access to locations and things like that and cooperation from communities. The crew, obviously, cast and crew, the legislature, governor's office, uh, political entities that help us get things done. I think people may not be aware that what you see, you get the press releases about, you know, Steven Spielberg movie or whatever, Ethan Hawke coming here a couple of times. They see that, but really we help with everything from the big movie to the smallest student film to even like a print ad for a furniture company out in Southwest Virginia. So it's still photography, it's documentary, it's anything that requires the palette of a location as a backdrop, right? In Virginia, as you know, we've got such a diverse palette. This is our strength. We can play mountains, we can play beaches and and everything in between. So that's the the bread and butter and bulk of our work is with things that you never really hear about in the newspaper. Speaking of helping smaller film, when I created my Dirt One documentary, the film office was great in helping me access some footage of Richmond that just stock footage and stuff and that we could use freely. So that, that was an example where I actually, and one time years ago, I did need help on a location and the film office was great on that. So yeah, they do help the little guys. It's not just the Spielbergs coming to town, which is obviously great. I don't want it to sound too, too try to whatever, but we're all about uh, customer service and kind of, when people call, they don't call just to say hello. They call because they have a problem or an issue they're trying to solve. So we always try to take people to the solution. Like a lot of film commissions around the world don't operate that way. I'm not trying to be critical of them, but really their operating procedure is like they're there to help people get a permit and then that's it. We are all, all about trying to develop a relationship with the client so they'll want to come back again. And right. so that is kind of born through really delivering and being a true production partner with them. I had this one friend that was working on a movie outside of Pittsburgh, right? And he needed to put a 10K light up on a railroad trestle near the scene they were shooting. And they were trying to get permission from Norfolk Southern Railroad that happened to be coming next to Pittsburgh where they were shooting the scene. And they couldn't get any cooperation from Norfolk Southern. So our friend Charlie Harrington, who I knew from John Adams, right? Location manager, huge location manager. Footnote. John Adams was an HBO series about our second president that was shot here in 2008. It also won 13 Emmy Awards and is wonderful. If you haven't seen it, it's still on HBO Max. He said, I got to call Andy. So he calls me and, you know, we hook him up with the Northbrook Southern Contacts here in Virginia. And I called him on his behalf. And within like five hours, we had a Norfolk Southern crew member out there helping them rig the light, you know? So, I mean, it's that kind of thing right. that we go, we try to go above beyond because not only because he's my friend, I want to help him, but that kind of reputation brings more work here through that personal getting the job done for him. Sure. You know? and, and speaking of the personal delivery, I mean, I know that there have been numerous stories. You might want to tell us one of the best examples of somebody who did come. You know, I know Ethan Hawke has been here twice now. I don't know if he made the decision on the second series or not, but tell me one of the best examples of somebody coming here, having a great experience and then coming back and bringing some more work with them. One of the earliest feature films of note that I worked on back in 99 was a movie called The Contender. Jeff Bridges played the president. Joan Allen played the vice president. And it's just an amazing film with Gary Oldman. And the director, writer, is named Rod Lurie. The first time he'd ever been to Virginia. And his producing partner there, James Spies, came. 
and we were doing the old trick of shooting Richmond as DC, right? And right. so Rod came and, and they had a great experience. They loved Virginia. They loved Richmond. So then he came back and did three more shows because of that experience. This is a this is a sad tale too, because he really wanted to keep coming back. He would have brought every movie in, coming back, coming back. Because that's what happens. You get kind of a hometown hero right. that wants to bring work and that a whole industry can be built around a filmmaker like right. M. Knight in uh, Pennsylvania or Rodriguez down in Texas, right? So right. Rod was kind of our guy for four shows. And then when incentives became more essential in the process of bringing work to your state or your country, and we didn't have enough fuel in the tank, a couple of shows came by that he wanted to do here. And we just did not have enough tax credit to be able to induce the work. And he had to go somewhere else. For example, the thread on Good Lord Bird and then onto this Apple show, Raymond and Ray. Footnote. Good Lord Bird was a miniseries starring Ethan Hawke that aired on Showtime in 2020. And Raymond and Ray is a new show for Apple that also stars Ethan Hawke with Ian McGregor. It recently wrapped production here. Goes back to Harriet, right? And the common thread there. Excuse me, you mean Harriet the movie, not a person named Harriet? Yeah, Harriet the movie, the Harriet Tubman biopic that we did here. Right. Casey Lemons directed with Cynthia Erivo, an amazing uh, film. Right. So I'll tell you a quick story of how that film came about and the relationship that was born from that. First of all, I'd gotten a call years ago from a live producer named Shay Cameron, and he was doing a show based on a book called Yellow Bird from, ironically, a Richmond author, right? And Shay and I were trying to figure out how we're going to make this movie in Virginia. It never got off the ground, but I remember having a great conversations with Shay. Ended up shooting in Georgia. Where they got all that money. Where they got all that tax credit money. So, But then Shay and I still became friends. So fast forward to about three, four years later, I am on vacation in the little town we love down on the Eastern Shore, getting ready to start Fourth of July vacation. I get a text. It's from uh, Doug Sloan, who's an animal wrangler in the movie business. He's the guy who puts the horses together, wagons, all this stuff, for, especially for period movies, right? So, right. And the horse guys are really early in on the process to know what projects are coming that are historical projects because they all need horses, right? And there's only a certain number of horse wranglers around the world. So anyway, Doug texts me and said, hey, man, do you know they're scouting for a Harriet Tubman movie in upstate New York? And I, I see that and I'm starting vacation. I go, oh, man, I know if I respond to this, I'm going to get sucked into something. Right, but, I, right. you know, I can't stop, you know, because I'm wired for the hunt. Right. So I text out and said, what's that all about, man? That should be here. And there were a couple different Harriet movies in development that we've been tracking. But what I found out was that this director, Casey Lemons, was from New York, really wanted to stay in New York. And they were already scouting in upstate New York. And they had already kind of locked in some locations, found the perfect place to do this and that. And I said, Doug, who's the line producer? Who's doing a budget for it? Who's working on it right now? And he said, it's a guy named Shay Cammer. And I went, oh, I remember that name. Uh -huh. I said, I, I bet I have that guy's number in my phone right now. And so they were right at that point, Jerry, I had a decision to make. Am I going to go play golf or am I going to call Shay Cammer and see if we can steal this thing from New York, even though they're already starting to open up offices, you know, pretty right. much up in, in New York. And I decided to myself, you know, I pretty much suck at golf. So I might as well give <laughs> Shay a call. I call Shay. I said, Shay, it's uh, Andy down in Virginia, man. How are you doing? I hear you're up in uh, New York scouting for a Harry Tubman movie. I said, what's up with that? You know, this is perfect for us. We got the perfect stuff for us. And, and Shay said, man, I cannot believe you called me. He said, I just, when I picked up the phone, I just finished doing the budget for this thing. 
and trying to figure out how they're going to be able to pull it off in New York. And they're so spread out and they're all over the place. And the number they have, there's no way they're going to be able to get this thing done. And I think the horse is already out of the barn. Pun intended there. Yeah, exactly. And I, I said, Shay, I said, let us send some pictures up there. And you guys take a look at them. In the meantime, our team back at the film office who are, you know, always brilliant, Lori and Dawn and Margaret. So we sent all this amazing stuff, including the state farm locations where we have 3,000 acres of land, right. all these sets we saved from John Adams that we can provide for free. So this was our big carrot. In the meantime, I looked up the project to see who the other producers were on the project to see if I knew anyone else. So sure enough, there was uh, one producer, Darlene, and I triangulated her to see what other projects those producers had worked on to see if I knew someone who knew them, right? And so I found out that my friend Donna Gelati, who produced Big Stone Gap in Virginia and also did the Hidden Figures, right? She worked with this producer, Darlene, on a movie produced in Africa. I knew somebody who knew somebody, right? So then I called Donna. I said, Donna, your friend Darlene's working on this Harriet Tubman movie. You know that we should be filming this in Virginia. Can you send her a text and tell her you love me, blah, 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 whatever. She said, okay, no problem, no problem, no problem. So she does. She texts Darlene. Then I get a call over the weekend from Darlene. Then on Monday, Shay calls me and says, man, I don't know what you did, but they want to come take a look. Wow, great. Yeah. And obviously the rest is history. But you know, it's funny (laughs) you mentioned that story. You mentioned John Adams and the horse wranglers because I was at a Virginia Production Alliance meeting years ago after John Adams had finished. And there was one young man standing there and we started talking. I said, so what do you do? He says, well, I'm an oxen wrangler. And I thought, oh, you got a big career ahead of you. (laughs) Not a lot of people who do that, actually. That is really specific. You talked about exteriors and stuff. I noticed recently I was watching an episode of Succession, the big HBO series, and there were some Richmond exteriors. Did they send people down to shoot those or did y'all just provide those? Because they didn't shoot the interiors here. They shot those, I think, in D.C. They shot those in New York, actually. Yeah. In New York. But no, yeah, their unit came down. This was probably three months of prep for like a day and a half of shooting. What would you say is your worst experience with a film? I would never answer that in a million years. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to see how you'd answer because I knew you wouldn't. How often do you actually go see movies? Do you ever get a chance to get out there and see some other than the ones you see in the screenings or are you too busy working all the time? No, I love going to the cinema and going to the theater live in person. I mean, but usually, you know, it's at festivals where I get to really gorge on seeing a bunch of movies and I like it. I'll go, you know, see three or four in a day. And, you know, I love like you, Jerry Williams. I love watching movies, man. And uh, what's amazing at the beginning of of COVID, you know, I said, man, if we're going to be stuck in a house, I'm going to be stuck here in glorious 70 inch 4K television with beautiful surround sound. So that was the first thing I did was went out and bought a new screen. The last big kind of thing I saw on the big screen, Power of the Dog, I saw. That's amazing you mentioned that one because I had a discussion with somebody because I watched it on TV at home. And I said to several people, I think that movie would be much more effective sitting in the dark because you're focused on it. It's big and impressive. And if at home, you know, you're tense. Oh, let's check my phone or, oh, I'm going to take a break and go to the bathroom. And I think that you're right. That's one of those movies that needs to be on a big screen to really have its full effect. Yeah. The candy of movies like that, of that scale, you just got to see them in that big screen. You know, yeah, you're right. Yeah. But all this episodic stuff that we're kind of binging on. Yeah. At home, it's it's fine. I know you're going to be coming back to do some uh, some updates with us. And I want to talk about incentives later on. But I want to ask you, how was 20 and 21? I know that there were some shows here. So how was 20 and 21 for the film office and for Virginia's film industry? Well, you know, it's a mixed story because a lot 
uh, of our indigenous homegrown companies were really struggling, right? You know, right. Of sure. the, yeah. the smaller production companies. And there's, there's a mixed story of, of course, we're concerned about all the smaller companies and independent contractors that depend on the workflow. But at the top end of the scale of the big spending projects, I mean, we actually, in 20, we, we had some super busy fall because once the unions figured out how to do the work in a COVID environment, right, right. once they put the protocols in place and the bubbles within bubbles and masking and testing, 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 which I knew they would figure out, we were super busy in the fall with three big shows that you heard about of uh, Walking Dead World Beyond. Swagger and Dope Sick just nominated for three Golden Globes, as you know. And those three shows alone was like well over $120 million spent in about eight right. months, wow. you know, right. in, in Virginia. So since then, it's been better. Like when Apple came in, you know, it was a lot more interaction going on there. And you're talking uh, and about Raymond that, and Ray. Yeah, yeah. yeah Raymond right. and Ray came in. And so it, I knew the producer, Julie Lynn, very well. And we've been trying for 13 years to get her to come bring a movie here to Virginia. And so she's a great, and to, see, to, to tie that back up, Shay Cammer, the guy with Harriet, also ended up doing Good Lord Bird that ties into Raymond and Ray. See, so that's, the, we're talking about the thread of relationships. Shay, from that first call with Yellow Birds that didn't happen, then Shay ended up doing the budget. So it, it's all, it, you can tie things together through, you know, even fewer than three degrees of separation of Kevin wow, Bacon. Wow. You know, it's just, everything's kind of connected together. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting how you mentioned the whole COVID protocols. It's interesting because I always watch all the credits stay to the end of the movie. And now obviously there's a whole section of COVID protocol officers and all these other people. So it's kind of wild to see that has a whole new area of credits in movies. Yeah, this whole new department. But I think that's going to stay because it's become kind of a safety thing too, not just for COVID, that I think it's going to tie in to many other issues that you're going to have this whole health and safety division that's going to be in the best interest of the studios to have that. And after Rust, obviously, that is even more important. Exactly. I'm assuming everybody knows, but Rust was the movie that was being made out of New Mexico when Alec Baldwin accidentally shot somebody. So that's what that was about. So do you ever get to play in bands anymore? You still get to be a musician or are you too busy running around trying to get movies here? Every now and then, man, I get to play and jump up on stage with some friends that, you know, I used to play music with, but I kind of, you know, it's, I'm living it through my nephews now that both went to Berkeley School of Music in Boston and are living in Nashville. So I kind of live it through them, but I miss it, man, because my soul started in music when I was 13 years old. My whole dream was about being a musician, a songwriter. And so now the second half of my life, you know, I spend helping other artists realize their dream. So obviously you can't tell us anything that's coming up because I know with new movies and new shows of any kind coming to town, they usually don't like people to know because they don't want people hanging around trying to meet the stars or anything. So is there anything coming up you can tell us about? (laughs) Well, there are things that are in various stages of conversation that uh, one of them is a very big period kind of miniseries we'd love to have. Another one is a more contemporary thing. Or one that I'm really excited is a Virginia-based filmmaker. I'll tell you about this one. This is a this is a great story. Derek Bort is a film director and writer from Virginia Beach. And Derek's first kind of known movie was a movie called Keeping Up with the Joneses with uh, David Duchovny. And he, he did a couple of other things. But then a few years ago, he approached us about wanting to do a film at home. 
And we did a partnership with Old Dominion University Film School and Derek and the film office. And we did a, a little film called American Dreamer. And uh, Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, plays a serious role as a dysfunctional Uber driver. He gets a job driving a drug dealer around. Have you ever seen that, Jerry? It's a I was great just gonna, film. I, I, you know, I, I see a couple hundred movies a year, so I start to blend. I was just going to look up on my website to see if it sounds vaguely familiar, but I'm not sure if I saw it. All right, well, you should see it. It's very much a Coen Brothers-esque kind of film, just really amazing little film. Uh, it did so well critically and uh, did well streaming. Derek got a gig, a $30 million budget to go do a Russell Crowe movie called Unhinged that he had to shoot, unfortunately, in Louisiana because we didn't have enough film incentive. So here's Derek Bort. Virginia filmmaker, wanted to film the Russell Crowe movie here in Virginia. We didn't have enough fuel. He had to go to Louisiana. He would send me pictures from his hotel room with the rain out the window with his <laughs> Virginia's for film, Virginia for film lovers cap in the windowsill going, why am I not in Virginia? Oh, you know, wow. he was not wow. He's got another script that he's written that's really good. Oh, and great, uh, great. he's trying to get it together now. And this is something that could go in the spring if we can get it together. He's got some casting things going on now and it's very much Coen Brothers kind of vibe and cool. dark comedy. And actually, you know, I did see Unhinged in the theaters. That was back when people were just starting to venture back in. And I thought it was a really good movie. It was great to see Russell Crowe as an evil, murderous villain. I really liked that film. So that'll be interesting to see what Derek does next. You're right. That was like the first movie that opened in theaters. It's one of yeah, the first, yeah, very first yeah. movies in theaters. And, uh, and it was an intense film. And it just proved that Derek Bort can make a movie. Now, the other thing kind of on our plate right now is the General Assembly, and we'll, we'll try to be there as our educational uh, part to hopefully inspire us to be able to get more support for film incentives, of course. But that lobbying effort comes through the Virginia Production Alliance, which right. I encourage everyone to obviously join the VPA. Right, right. And we're going to be having interviews with the VPA folks in the near future, too. So Yeah, because our office is technically not allowed to lobby, right? Exactly, uh, but right. The trade, trade Association can but we, of course, are there as kind of the entity that knows, you know, the information of what clients need and, and what makes the needle move in production. So um, we're there to provide educational support of what the needs may be. And if I could just put a shout out to uh, Dope Sick, it was just an honor to work on this project. Uh, we could probably talk a whole episode about Dope Sick and Beth Macy, Virginia author. But it's just so fulfilling when a project that is so important about such an important subject to bring awareness to addiction and change people's point of view about addiction unto itself, right. but also to let people know about the injustice that occurred to our nation as a result of this opioid epidemic and how that happened. And then how this show has actually brought more attention to the issue and may actually move the needle for some justice to finally come forward. So when you have a movie that creates great jobs, great attention to Virginia, but also has this ancillary value that's really important. So Shout out to Dope Sick. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. And I have to admit, I, I have not seen it, but see, I already got Netflix, Amazon, Disney Plus, AMC Plus. I got everything but Hulu, basically. Uh, there's a couple I left out that I've got. And it's like, okay, I'm just don't need another one right now, but I do want to watch it because I have heard great things about it. Jerry Williams, you are Jerry <laughs> Williams. You have to have them all, my friend. Come on. I know. Maybe I'll have to break <laughs> down and get Hulu too. But uh, I'm just now finishing up all the stuff that I've never seen on Disney and Apple. So there's just, there's just so much, as I, you know. It just keeps pouring out. It is amazing. 
Thank you for coming and launching my new Sifter podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Derry. I really appreciate it. Look forward to talking to you again, man. Thank you. Very entertaining and informative. Thank you, Andy. Footnote. After being shamed by Andy, I renewed my subscription to Hulu and will post my review of Dope Sick tomorrow on Sifter. Coming soon. Coming to local theaters this week, The 355, an action flick starring Jessica Chastain and an international gang of women spies. A Hero, the latest from the Iranian director who's won two foreign language Oscars for The Salesman and A Separation. A Hero won the Grand Prix at Cannes this year. Also opening, See For Me, a blind woman facing a home invasion, and Poupelle of Chimney Town, a Japanese animation based on the children's book. The Golden Globes will be announced on January 9th, but after last year's all-white judge disgrace, NBC opted not to air the show this year. Because of the cancellation, some stars and studios are even reluctant to publicize their nominations. Also, the Critics' Choice Awards, which actually has better cred because it involves over 500 voters, was supposed to air on the 9th on The CW and TBS, but they've decided to postpone that event due to COVID. However, a new version of Around the World in 80 Days, starring David Tennant, started January 2nd on PBS Masterpiece Theater. Also on the small screen, the fifth season of Search Party drops on the 7th, and the second season of The Righteous Gemstones on the 9th. Both are on HBO and recommended. I want to dedicate this inaugural episode to Jeff McGall, who died in December. He was an exceptional audio technician that I had the pleasure of working with for many years, but he was also a very sweet man. He will be missed. The Sifter Podcast is published every Wednesday, featuring interviews, news, and reviews of film, TV, and streaming. You can listen or sign up for subscriptions at tvjerry.com. And if you have suggestions for shows or would like to be a guest reviewer, there's contact information there, too. Thanks for listening. See you next time. For more Sifter, including literally thousands, thousands of, of reviews, reviews, visit tvjerry.com. That's a wrap.